If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. This is a best of Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to hear from two live interviews I conducted with Hillary Clinton. Walt Mossberg and I conducted the first one at the 2017 Code Conference. And then later in the show, we'll be playing part of my conversation with Clinton from October 2018, recorded at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. As I mentioned, this is one of our favorite episodes from the past five years, so you're listening to a rerun. But Vox Media and New York Magazine will be bringing you new interviews on this feed later this year, so please stay subscribed. You can still hear me twice a week on my other podcast, Pivot, with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. Head over there for fresh, fun, smart conversations about tech and media and all of businesses' wins and fails and predictions for what comes next. Just search for Pivot in your podcast app of choice. But now, here's Walt Mossberg and me interviewing Hillary Clinton at the 2017 Code Conference right after she lost the election. We're going to talk a lot about tech and politics and mm-hmm. tech in our country, yeah, yeah. your views on it. I think this was, uh, we were talking backstage, and I think this was the first election where tech sort of got weaponized in a way that, that uh, directly affected the outcome of the election. And I know you have yeah. stuff to say about it, but I have to ask you first, right. um, discounting all those outside forces, which were obviously very important, what misjudgment did you mm-hmm. make mm-hmm. and your staff right. that you, th- thinking about it, uh, was uh, y- something serious and, and that you wish you had done the opposite? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm writing a whole book, Walt. And, well, uh, I, I don't want to wait we, for the book. We, yeah, we, we don't, we don't uh, probably have enough time for everything. Uh, but look, the overriding issue that uh, affected the election that I had any control over, because I had no control over the Russians. Um, too bad about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, I hope. Um, was the way that uh, the use of uh, my email account was uh, turned into, you know, the biggest scandal since Lord knows when. And, you know, I'm just, in the book, I'm just using every... Uh, everything that anybody else said about it besides me to basically said this was the biggest nothing burger ever. It was a mistake. I've said it was a mistake. And obviously, if I got turned the clock back, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. But the way that it was used uh, was very damaging. So, And you didn't handle it? That's a mistake on your part? Or the way it was used was a mistake on your part? Because well, we're trying to get at what yeah. you think you misjudged. Well, 
if you went all the way back, uh, doing something that others had done before mm-hmm. was no longer acceptable in the new environment in which we found ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there was no law against it. There was no rule, nothing of that sort. So I didn't break any rule. Nobody said, don't do this. And I was very responsible and not at all careless. So you end up with a situation that is then exploited and very effectively for adverse political uh, reasons. And it was maddening because in the middle of a hard-fought campaign, it's hard to stop and say, wait a minute, what you think you know about this is not accurate, let me tell you. You can still judge me. You can still hold me accountable. That's fair game. Uh, But there was so much else going on at that time. And the investigation that they conducted ended in July. It was over. And I have my my, uh, complaints about uh, former director Comey, but it was done. And then it was reignited, and it became the major reason toward the end Uh, based on the best analysis that I can find, uh, that I lost ground and ended up losing. So obviously, turn the clock back. But what was done, and I think it was interesting, I know you had Dean Bacay here from the New York Times uh, yesterday, and they covered it like it was Pearl Harbor. And then in their endorsement of me, they said, this email thing, it's like a help desk issue. So... It was always a hard issue to put to bed, but we put it to bed in July, and then it rose up again. Okay, I, I want to do one more of these misjudgment things, then we're going to go on. Uh, Goldman Sachs. Yeah. You knew you were going to run for president, or you thought you might, or probably you were thinking about it. You had to be thinking about it as a cons- possibility. Well, Why did you do those? I, I, don't, I don't... Why do you have Goldman Sachs here? Because <laughs> they pay us. They, they paid me. Yeah, no, but there's a... <laughs> you know, no, look, again, I, I, mean, I, I have... Let's no, get they, serious. But, but, they, I know I, they paid you, but yes. and they paid you a lot. Yes, But yes. you didn't... You're yes. not somebody who needed that money for the next week's shopping, and you might have... You knew you might okay. have run, so why do it? Well, I gave speeches to many, many groups. I spoke to camp counselors. I spoke to health care executives. I spoke to, you know, just a a wide range of groups, right? And not just in the United States, but uh, particularly in Canada and a few other places. And I was a senator from New York. I knew these people, and I knew what they did for the economy, and I knew what they did to the economy. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, speaking to them, raising questions, which I did in 2008 and 2009, you know, people have no reason to know this, but in the 2008 campaign before the Iowa caucus, I actually ran an ad about the looming mortgage crisis. So I have to say, Walt, I never, it, I never thought that anybody would throw out my entire career of standing up and speaking out and voting against and voting in favor of what I thought are good policies uh, because I made a couple of speeches. And So when you're the Secretary of State, people want to hear what you talk about. The most common thing that I talked about in all those speeches was the hunt for bin Laden. You know, that was, you know, one of the central missions that I felt on from the time the towers fell on 9-11 as a senator from New York. And to be part of that, to be one of the very few people advising the president on that, you know, that was a fascinating issue. And I thought I could tell that to a lot of different people. And... 
You know, men got paid for the speeches they made. <laughs> I got paid for the speeches I made. And it was used, and I thought it was unfairly used and all of that, but it, it was part of the background music. So let's talk about, but, but it was used. When, and I think we discussed this, you and I have discussed this, this idea <clears throat> of how many years ago did you talk about the vast right-wing conspiracy? Um, about, let's see, it was probably 98. Right. Yeah. And at the time, people thought you were? A little crazy. Right. Okay. Um, LAUGHTER what is it like now? What, how do you look at it now? Because it is used. Because you're someone that's got to know that a target's <clears throat> on your back almost every, <clears throat> yeah. you know, right now every bot in Russia is working their way with the last 20 seconds of things you said. Yes, yeah. right. Well, I hope we get into this because, look, I take responsibility for every decision I made, but that's not why I lost. So I think it's important that we learn the real lessons from this last campaign. Because the forces that we are up against are not just interested in influencing our elections and our politics. They're going after our economy, and they're going after our unity as a nation. So, yes, back in uh, 98, look, I've, I have been watching this and been, you know, obviously the target for a number of years. Uh, and what is hard for people to really except, although now after the election there's greater understanding, is that there are forces in our country, put the Russians to one side, who have been fighting rearguard actions for as long as I've been alive because my life coincided with the civil rights movement, with the women's rights movement, with anti-war protesting, with the impeachment or not, you know, the driving out of office because he was about to be impeached uh, president. Let's be specific. Uh, yeah, let's be very specific, as if people didn't understand what I was saying. Um, and let's talk about, you know, uh, Watergate and all the stuff that we lived through. And we were on a real roll as a country despite assassinations, despite setbacks, you know, opening the doors of opportunity, expanding rights to people who never had them in any country um, was frankly thrilling. And I believed then, and I believe now, <clears throat> that we're never done with this work. And so part of the challenge is to maintain the energy and the focus to keep going forward. But you got to recognize the other side is never never tired either. They're always looking to push back. And what we saw was uh, in this election particularly, and I appreciate what Walt said, the first time that you had the tech revolution really weaponized politically, before it was a way to reach voters, you know, collect fundraising, do things that would help the candidate who was behind the messaging. That changed this time, and it changed for a number of reasons we should talk about. You had Citizens United come to its full fruition. So unaccountable money flowing in against me, against uh, other Democrats, in a way that we hadn't seen, and then attached to this weaponized information war. You had effective suppression of votes. I mean, those of us who can remember... Uh, the Voting Rights Act, the expansion of the franchise, and then I was in the Senate when we voted 98 to nothing under a Republican president, George W. Bush, to extend the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court said, oh, we don't need it anymore, throws it out, 
and Republican governors and legislatures began doing everything they could to suppress the vote. So that was before we get to the Russians or Cambridge Analytica or anything of the outside. And there were lots of factors at work. And yeah, it was aimed at me, um, but it's a much deeper, more persistent effort to try to literally turn the clock back on so much of what we have achieved as a country. So talk about the weaponizing of it, because one of the things that's interesting, now you've recently, and we've talked about the uses of Facebook, the uses of, we can get into Donald Trump's Twitter thing in a second, that's because that's a whole, that could be a whole conference, essentially. Um, But but how do you look at, how do you see how it was weaponized? And let me, it begs the question, why weren't you weaponizing it? Like, why, right. why is the right wing so good at it? And not just it? you, but and not just saying the we, Democrats. The yeah. Democrats. Yeah. Well, look, here, here's how I see it. And, you know, I, I hope others will jump into this debate in the months ahead because there's a lot that we have to understand if we're going to avoid uh, this um, continuing assault on our sources of information. Here's how I, I think about it. Um, you know, I was very proud of my data and analytics team. They were largely veterans of the Obama campaigns, 08, 12, and then we brought in new people and brought in a lot of, uh, you know, new expertise to build uh, the sort of next generation. And we had a lot of help from some people in uh, Silicon Valley as well. And what we thought we were doing, here's the arena we were playing in, was going to like Obama 3.0, you know, better targeting, better messaging, and the ability to both uh, turn out our voters as we identified them uh, and to communicate more broadly with voters. Here's what the other side was doing, and they were in a different arena. Through content farms, through an enormous investment in uh, falsehoods, Fake news, call it what you will. How about lies? Lies are really, that's a good word too. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the other side was using content that was just flat out false and delivering it in a very personalized way. You know, both sort of above the radar screen and below. Um, and I, you know, look, I'm not, I'm not a... a text expert by any stretch of the imagination, um, that really influenced the information that people were relying on. And there have been some studies done since the election that if you look, let's pick Facebook, if you look at Facebook, uh, the vast majority of the news, news items posted were fake. They were connected to as we now know, the 1,000 Russian agents who were involved in delivering those messages. They were connected to the bots uh, that are just out of control. We see now this new information about Trump's Twitter account being populated by millions of, uh, of bots. And it was, it was such a new experience. I, I understand why people on their Facebook pages would think, oh, Hillary Clinton did that. I did not know that. Well, that's going to affect my opinion about her. And we were we did not engage in false content. We may, we may have tried to put every piece of information in the best possible light and explanations, but we weren't in uh, the same category as but, the other well, side. But, but, but yeah. okay, so you weren't going to lie. Right. Good for you. Well, yes. um, 
<laughs> well, I see you rethinking that. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rethinking it, but everybody else better rethink it because we have to figure out how to okay, combat but, this. But that's my point. Yeah. Uh, my impression is that the, that the left, the Democrats, the liberals, whatever you want to call them, including Bernie Sanders folks and all, everybody uh, on, on the Democratic side, which at, which at one time, many, you know, like 12, 15 years ago, was ahead of the Republicans mm-hmm. on yeah. Peck as it right. existed then, right. is way behind now. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just, I mean, there's a way to weaponize tech that doesn't involve lying right. uh, or, doing, or having Russians help you. Right. But just, it, it, it is a political weapon. It's a fact of life so now. So how do you do that? How do you do well, it? How do we do it? But let, let me, let me, let me uh, just do a comparison for you. So... You know, I set up my campaign, and we have our own data operation. I get the nomination. So I'm now the nominee of the Democratic Party. I inherit nothing from the Democratic Party. What do you mean nothing? I mean it was bankrupt. It was on the verge of insolvency. Its data was mediocre to poor, non-existent, wrong, I had to inject money into it. This is the DNC. The, the DNC to keep it going. Okay. Donald Trump, who did nothing about really setting up any kind of data operation, inherits an RNC data foundation that after the Republicans lost in 2012, and they thought they had a very good operation with the setup that Romney did, the, called Orca. They thought that was really state of the art. They lose. So they raised, best estimates are close to $100 million. They brought in their main vendors. They basically said, we will never be behind the Democrats again. And they invested between 2012 and 2016 this $100 million to build this data foundation. They beta tested it. Uh, They ran it, somebody was able to determine about 227,000 surveys to double check, triple check, quadruple check the information. So Trump becomes the nominee, and he is basically handed this tried and true, effective foundation. Then you've got Cambridge Analytica, and you know you can believe the, the hype on how great they were or the hype on how they weren't, but the fact is they added something. And I think, again, we better understand that. The Mercers did not in- invest all that money just for their own amusement. Mm-hmm. We know they played in Brexit, and we know that... Uh, they came to uh, Jared Kushner and basically said, we will marry our operation, which was more, as it's been described, psychographic sentiment, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, harvesting of Facebook information. We will marry that with uh, the, the RNC on two conditions. You pick Steve Bannon and you pick Kellyanne Conway, and then we're in. Trump says, fine, who cares, right? So Bannon, who'd been running the Breitbart operation, supplying a lot of the, uh, the untrue, false stories. Let's start saying lies. Yeah, uh, we, we know. Uh, so they married content with delivery and data. And it was a potent combination. Now, the, the question is where and how did the Russians get into this? And I think it's a very important question. So I, I assume that a lot of the people here may have, and if you haven't, I hope you will, read the declassified uh, report by the intelligence community that came out in early January. 
This is 17 agencies. 17 agencies, all in agreement, which I know from my experience as a senator and secretary of state is, is hard to get. They concluded with high confidence that the Russians ran an extensive information war campaign against my campaign to influence voters in the election. They did it through paid advertising, we think. They did it through uh, false news sites. They did it through these thousand agents. They did it through machine learning, which you know, kept spewing out this stuff over and over again, the algorithms that they developed now. So that was the conclusion. And I think it's fair to ask, how did that actually influence the campaign? And how did they know what messages to deliver? Who told them? Who told them? Yeah. Who were they coordinating with or colluding with? Because the Russians historically, in the last couple of decades, and then increasingly, you know, are launching cyber attacks. And they are stealing vast amounts of information. And a lot of the information they've stolen, they've used for internal purposes, to affect markets, to affect um, the intelligence services, et cetera. So this was different because they went public and they were conveying this uh, weaponized information and the content of it. And they were running, you know, there's all these stories about, you know, guys over in Macedonia who are running these fake news sites. And, I, you know, I've seen them now and you, you sit there and it looks like a, you know, sort of low level CNN operation. And or a got, fake newspaper, or like a fake the Denver news, Guardian. Like a fake newspaper. That. And so... The Russians, in my opinion, and based on the intel and counterintel people I've talked to, could not have known how best to weaponize that information unless they had been guided. And here's a here's guided by Americans, guided by Americans, and guided by people who had, you know, polling and data information. Now let me just finish because this is the second and third step. So we know that they they did that. We understand it. Um, Best example. So within one hour, one hour of the Access Hollywood tapes being leaked, within one hour, the Russians, let's say WikiLeaks, same thing, dumped (laughs) the John Podesta emails. Now, if you've ever read the John Podesta emails, they are anodyne to boredom. But they... Yeah, we had him here once. Yeah, but they were... They were, yeah, and, you know, forgive him for what he said about you, yeah. Um, So they were run-of-the-mill emails, especially run-of-the-mill for a campaign. Should we do this? What should she say? I don't, you know, the the stuff that is so common, basic. Within one hour, they dumped them, and then they began to weaponize them. And they began to have some of their allies within the uh, Internet world like Infowars, take out pieces and begin to say the most outrageous, outlandish, absurd lies you can imagine. And so they had to be ready for that, and they had to have a plan for that, and they had to be given the go-ahead. Okay, this could be the end of the Trump campaign. Dump it now, and then let's do everything we can to weaponize it. And we know it hurt us because, as I explain in my book... You know, the, uh, the Comey letter, which was, now we know, partly based on a false memo from the Russians. Right. 
It was a classic piece of Russian disinformation, compromat, they call it. So for whatever reason, and I speculate, but I, I can't look inside the guy's mind, you know, he dumps that on me on October 28th, and I immediately start falling. But what was really interesting, since the mainstream media covered that, as I say, like Pearl Harbor, front pages everywhere, huge type, etc., and all of the Trump people go around screaming, lock her up, lock her up, and, and all of that. At the same time, the biggest Google searches were not for Comey, because that information was just lying out there. It was for WikiLeaks. And so voters who are being targeted with all of this false information are genuinely trying to make up their minds. What does it mean? And we know that the Google searches for this stuff were particularly high in places in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So, two couple questions yeah. for this. That was fascinating, actually. I was like riveted to that. Um, Who was directing them, from your perspective? And do you blame, and I'm going to just use Facebook, because that's where a lot of this was done, um, especially around the fake news, which was either the Pope was voting for Trump, or there was one particular one I got in an argument with Facebook people about, you being a lizard um, that was going around. <laughs> Um, and they kept arguing about the gray area and this and that, and I remember being in a call saying, she's not a lizard! <laughs> Thank so- you, Kara. Thank you. Okay, That's- now... That's actually a, a kind thing from Kara. Yeah, it is. I, I'm very touched. But, but do you blame... And I'm I have a I'll pillow. be honest, I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't know if you're a lizard or not, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is I, I'm guessing you're not a lizard. But do you, who do you think directed it? And do you blame Facebook for doing, do you, or, or any of these platforms for doing nothing? Or should, what should they have done? Well, let, 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 me sep- let me separate out the questions. Okay. First, um, we're, we're getting more information about all of the contacts between Trump campaign officials and Trump associates with Russians before, during, and after the election. Um, So I hope that we'll get enough information to be able to answer that question. Um, But you're leaning Trump. Yes. Okay. Yes, I'm leaning Trump. I think I think it's pretty hard not to. I think that that the the marriage of the domestic fake news operations, uh, the domestic RNC. Republican allied data, you know, combined with the, uh, the very uh, effective uh, capabilities that the Russians brought. You know, basically, the group running this was the GRU, which is the military intelligence uh, arm of the Russian military, and they have a very sophisticated cyber operation. In bed with WikiLeaks, in bed with Guccifer, in bed with DC Leaks. And, you know, DC Leaks and Guccifer, which were dropping a lot of this stuff on me, they haven't, they haven't done anything since early January. So, I mean, their, their job was done. They got their job done. So we're going to, I hope, be able to connect up a lot of the dots. And it's really important because, you know, when Comey did testify before being fired um, this last couple of weeks, he was asked, are the Russians still involved? And he goes, yes, they are. Look, why wouldn't they be? It worked for them. And it is important that Americans and particularly people in tech and business understand, you know, Putin wants to bring us down and he is an old KGB agent. I had obviously run-ins with him because that in large measure prompted his animus toward me and his desire to help uh, Trump. Um, But it is deeper than that. It's way beyond me. So with respect to the platforms, 
You know, I, I am, uh, again, uh, not exactly sure what conclusions we should draw. But here's what I believe. I believe that what was happening to me was unprecedented, and we were scrambling. We went and told everybody we could find in the middle of the summer the Russians were messing with the election, and we were basically shooed away. Like, oh, you know, there she goes, vast right-wing conspiracy. Now it's a vast Russian conspiracy. Well, it turned out we were right, and we saw evidence of it. We, we could track it, and we couldn't get, we could not get the press to follow it, and we never got confirmation. Remember, you know, Comey was more than happy to talk about my emails, but he wouldn't talk about investigation of the Russians. So people went to vote on November 8th, having no idea that there was an active counterintelligence investigation going on of the Trump campaign. So if I put myself in the position of running a platform like Facebook, first of all, they've got to get back to trying to curate it more effectively, put me out of the equation. They've got to help prevent fake news from creating a new reality that does influence how people you know, think of themselves, see the world, the decisions that they make. I, I don't know enough about what they could have done in real time. It wasn't like we were not having conversations with them because a lot of the people on my team were. I also think I was the victim of a very broad assumption I was going to win. It doesn't matter what you do the to victim her. Victim that you were going to win. Yeah, just, you know, everybody. You're talking about Nate Silver and the yeah, Times. And, well, oh, she has an 88%. Yeah. No, she has a 89 Yeah, and, and, you know, I never believed that. I always thought it was going to be a, a close election because our elections are always close. And, you know, if you have an R next to your name or a D next to your name, you end up often falling in line to vote for your candidate. So I think a lot of people, we'll get to that after the election. You know, we're not going to worry about it right now. And that turned out to be a terrible mistake. That was from the 2017 Code Conference, where Walt Mossberg and I interviewed former Secretary of State and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this to hear from a follow-up interview I conducted in October 2018. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi. Hi, is it your birthday? Today, today is my birthday, All truly. Right. And, and what better way to spend it exactly. than right here at the 92nd Street Y? That's, right, exactly. that's what I think. 
So I, you told me backstage your grandchildren Matt, are angry at me. Yes, they are. Okay, yeah. because you left a party. I did. Yeah. I did. They put on a little party for me. It yeah. was, inc- yeah, exactly. It was so sweet. <laughs> and um, uh, sort of made a cake. Actually, the, they decorated the cake. And we played uh, a game or two. And then I said, well, I have to go. Why? Why, Grandma? Where are you going? I said, I have to go talk to Kara Swisher. That's why. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to be here. Good. And, uh, All right. We have a lot yeah. to you've, got, you've got a lot to get through and a lot to talk about. Uh, Hillary and I met yesterday to talk a little bit about what's going yeah. on today. And there's a lot in there's the news. There's so much happening. So much happening. I mean, really. Um, we're going to go from topic to topic to topic. Oh. Questions from the... Are you, gonna, are you okay? Yeah. Right, I'm getting ready. So this is... This is the third interview we've done. We did one before, way before the election. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, we did one right after the election. Right, spring and, of 2017. Right, right mm-hmm. after, and then now. Exactly. So, third time's a charm. Yes. Um, and I, what I was saying to Hillary backstage is, every time Mark Zuckerberg talks to me, it ends in disaster and tears for Mark Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. I'm not hiding anybody's data, so I'm, right, I'm in exactly. good shape. Right, exactly. We're going to... <laughs> Um, I'm going to start with the, the news of today. Yeah. The, the bomber. So today, this guy, Cesar, and I, I don't care what his name is, um, is uh, had this on his car. Right. Uh, with you with a target. Right. On it. Other people, lots of people with a target. Mm-hmm. And then uh, part of the thing said this message was approved by Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I know. Oh, yeah, you're right. What a surprise. Um, so let's talk about that about what's going on, how you feel about this. Now, you got a pipe bomb uh, yes. over to you at your home. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Well, first, um, I, I want to just express my total gratitude to the Secret Service, the FBI, law enforcement, <laughs> across the country. Um, you know, the fact that this man has been apprehended and there is apparently a very credible, strong case against him uh, speaks volumes about how uh, professional and focused our law enforcement uh, happens to be. And, of course, when there's a bomb involved, uh, you have to have uh, an extraordinary level of calmness and uh, just focus to be able to deal with that. And I am uh, incredibly impressed uh, and appreciative as someone who, as you say, was a target of this kind of alleged purported attack. Look, I think we're living at a time when the atmosphere is so volatile, filled with vitriol. Uh, We have a president who engages in reckless uh, rhetoric all the time Mm -hmm. uh, that aims at demeaning, demonizing all kinds of people. He whips up the crowds that come to see him, and it's almost an addiction relationship, you know, that we've got, you know, him up there just urging them on, they chanting and giving back what he needs, I guess, to uh, make himself uh, feel, you know, strong and important. And it's tragic. But it's also really dangerous. So and how, we've how, see, that is an example of the danger because, you know, look, this man, if he is the person which appears to be, he is responsible for his actions. But we do know enough about 
demagogues in history to know that when you engage in that kind of action and rhetoric, as we're seeing from the highest office of our country, aided and abetted by a huge echo chamber, uh, there are people, this guy has a criminal record, uh, there are unbalanced people. You know, look, I remember when the, you know, the young man in North Carolina got in his car to drive to Washington, D.C. with his AR-15 to liberate uh, the children allegedly held in the basement of the pizza parlor. That, that you ran. Oh, that I ran, of course, yes. And, um, you know, what? You know there was no basement can I just and say, no children. I, um, but he did shoot up the place. But there's excellent pizza there. Uh, there is. It's a great place if you're ever in Washington. So when you, you use the word demagogue, mm -hmm. Trump to you is a demagogue. Absolutely. And when he is doing this, like today, the reaction, how did, he, how did you react to his reaction to... to Look, he, he's just, I mean, to me, he just goes through the motions. I mean, at moments like that, when you really need a president, a president who unites the country, uh, somebody on his staff sticks a paper in front of him or words on a teleprompter, which he's then told to go out and recite. Um, he does it in a begrudging, not very convincing way. Um, and then he just waits for the chance when he can get into one of his rallies again or have any kind of audience that he can unleash himself. Um, you know, Madeleine Albright wrote a book earlier this year called Fascism, A Warning. And I really recommend it because I'm not only a huge admirer and friend of hers, but her perspective as someone who had to flee uh, Czechoslovakia twice, first from the Nazis, then from the communists, uh, is something Americans need to be reminded of. And she has a quote in there where Mussolini, a demagogue, an authoritarian, who used that kind of rhetoric, who inflamed the passions of thugs on the street, who beat up, intimidated, and eventually murdered political opponents, members of the press and the like. Mussolini says, you know, when you pluck a chicken feather by feather, nobody notices. Well, I think we now notice. I mean, how can we not notice? Well, except that day by day, it's a different thing. Last, you know, last month was this, then there was that. There has been about six things in a row. So when you're talking about that, where, does it, where do you think it's going to lead? It depends upon what happens in this election. I have never been surer in my life that an election is consequential for literally the future of our country. You know, look, if, if, if I had lost to kind of a normal Republican... Um, <laughs> I, like who? Like who? Yeah. It's a normal Republican. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I'm not naming any of them. They'll be, you know... They'll, <laughs> they, they, they would be too, you know, nervous about that. But, um, you know, but, but somebody with whom I disagreed with on everything, like I have in the past, I wouldn't be happy. But I do remember, after 9-11, and those of us in New York have special reason to remember... George W. Bush went to an Islamic center and he spoke to the people there and he spoke to the people of our country saying, you know, this is about terrorism and terrorists. It's not about, you know, law-abiding people who we live with in our neighborhoods and our communities. Can you imagine that happening today? I, I can't because we've seen no evidence that it could. Or if it did, again, it would be begrudging, unconvincing, and then out the door and back into the crazy stuff that we hear all the time. So look, this election now 10 days away will determine whether we actually have workable checks and balances 
to hold this administration accountable. In the absence of that, winning the House, maybe winning the Senate, um, I really do fear as to what will be next, what kinds of behavior so and you, action we might see so from him. do you fear? Because you are the... Their I favorite. fear for the country, yeah. What about yourself? No. Because you, you are their favorite person to talk about, well, locking you up, hurting you, right. bombing. Yes, well, you know. Why do, I'm sorry, is that not frightening to you? No, no. And I'll tell you, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. First of all, you, you know, you cannot, if you at all are able, live in fear. You just can't. I mean... There's so much else that is great about my life, you know, including my grandchildren and everything else that goes with it. So I saw what they said about me. I saw the T-shirts they were selling. I saw the mugs they were selling. I saw the bumper sticks they were selling at their convention. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, it really did go far beyond the bounds of political disagreement. A lot of it was just plain, old-fashioned sexism and misogyny. And I realized that I, you know... Um, was vying to become president, which apparently was quite threatening to certain kinds of people. And so they were, you know, doing everything they could to diminish and demean me. Um, you know, <laughs> Margaret Atwood, who wrote Handmaid's Tale, said, oh my gosh, it was medieval, wasn't it, what they did to you? And yeah, they tried. But I would never give them the satisfaction of thinking that they had ever gotten to me, even if they did get to me, which they have not. So... That's not, that's not going to happen. Now, however, when you do get a pipe bomb sent to your address, you do worry about all the other people. I mean, people who open your mail, people who deliver it, people who might be in the vicinity. So, of course, I worry um, about what we can do to keep everybody uh, safe. Uh, but circling back to where we are right now, you've got a concerted, consistent attack on our democracy. You've got someone who is degrading the rule of law. You know, the very bureau, the, the FBI, that ran the investigation to find this guy has been uh, insulted and attacked by this president. You have the delegitimizing of elections, every effort being made to suppress and purge voters, to not count votes, to try to uh, rig the system, as it is sometimes alleged. Um, but clearly it's happening in places like Georgia as we speak, where if there were a free, fair, transparent election, I am confident Stacey Abrams would be the next governor of the state of Georgia. So, 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 so what, when you're in this situation, what do you imagine is going to happen next if, if this election right. doesn't go that way? What do you well, think first of all, I'm doing everything I can. I hope all of you are too, to make sure it does go the right way. We've got, we've got the most amazing candidates, lots of women, lots of people of color, lots of young people. I mean, it would just be such a great uh, uh, sea change. Look, if we're not able to rein him in, I think there will be wholesale firings particularly in the Justice Department, perhaps including uh, Robert Mueller. Uh, there will be increasing corruption, because remember, the level of corruption is something we haven't seen since probably the 1920s in the Teapot Dome scandal. And so many of the decisions that are being made look to be 
connected to what's in the financial interests of the president's family, corporation, and corporate allies. We've got the likelihood that as bad as voter suppression has been, and it is, that it could be even worse. Uh, We know that his uh, views about every issue is resulting in the wholesale uh, elimination and reversing of regulations. I mean, until he became president, I thought the issue about the dangers of asbestos had been settled. Um, (laughs) So there's so much more damage. Some of it very obvious, very clear, makes the headlines, and a lot of it just slowly eroding uh, the function and services uh, of government. How much do you feel at fault for this? Do you feel at all in terms of, do you think about that? I know. Sure, no, no, look. yeah, if I'd won, none of this would be happening. Yeah, okay. uh, so yeah, I do. I do think about it. Um, do you think you know, about that at all? Like, the, of course I do. Yeah. And and I wrote a whole book about it. Um, yeah, which, I, read it. Uh, I read it. Which now you know is out in paperback for anybody who hasn't read it yet. Um, <laughs> but you know, but in it I talk about. Look, we made we made mistakes. I made mistakes. I don't know any campaign or any human being who doesn't. So that kind of is baked into it. Uh, but there were some very unusual unprecedented activities that were going on in that campaign. And obviously you and I have talked before about, you know, the Russians and what they did and what the impact of it uh, was, uh, I believe, uh, likely to have been with respect to the outcome. So there were things happening that had never happened before. And that was then, now nearly two years ago. And from everything we know, a lot of it is still happening because there's no incentive for this administration to really do what should be done to keep foreign adversaries, not just the Russians, but you know, if you're sitting in Tehran or in Beijing or in Pyongyang and you say, hey, the Russians did this, hey, let's, let us give it a try, you're going to have even more foreign interference, influence peddling, propaganda, going on and there's no concerted effort to try to so w- stop that. When we talked right after the election, mm-hmm. you were raising these issues around I was. the Russians. I was. And most people, the minute we got off stage, it was Breitbart, Fox News, mm-hmm. all the others saying you were crazy. That yeah, the Russians, they said that before. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> they, keep, they, they you yeah. may not listen to it, but they're still saying it. You talked about this. and. Mm-hmm in detail, what have you learned since of what you think happened there? And then let's get into yes. the social media's right. uh, well, relationship. Um, you know, after the election, I did not know what happened, um, but I was determined that I would try to find out to the best of my ability, given, you know, fast moving events and unveiling uh, of information. And look, I, I really, believe that there was a combination of factors that changed the outcome at the very end. Starting on October 7th, uh, the uh, day was so consequential. It started with the first public uh, admission by our intelligence agencies in the Obama administration that the Russians had been hacking, okay. And it was also a warning that we don't know what else they're doing. We're trying to figure this out. That was in the morning. A few hours later, the Hollywood access tapes uh, came out. A few hours after that, WikiLeaks dumps John Podesta's emails. Now, I don't believe in coincidences. Um, And why were those dumped? They were being held to be dumped in order to divert attention 
from anything that might derail Trump. You know, in the first Mueller indictment, uh, which I, you know, some of you may be uh, interested in reading both indictments so far, the first one on social media basically has a line in it where it's an intercepted conversation or email where the Russian general is directing uh, his intelligence agents, you know, do everything negative you can to Hillary Clinton, but not to Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. We support them. So this is, this is something that had been churning and going on uh, for many months. And we know about the DNC emails and now all of a sudden the Podesta emails. And what was fascinating about it is the way that they were weaponized. You know, this pizza, uh, so-called Pizzagate thing, uh, came from a, the, a totally innocent email that the, you know, the right, uh, aided and abetted by the Russians, whipped up into this ridiculous, terrible um, conspiracy uh, accusation. So we now know a lot more than we did when I started writing my book. But when I was writing my book, I had enough evidence the Russians the suppression of votes, which was particularly uh, obvious in a state like Wisconsin, sexism, uh, misogyny, there was enough evidence to be able to make the assertions that I made in the book. Because when I came to talk with you in the spring of 2017, I hadn't finished the book. Right. But I felt confident enough in the face of the disbelief and the you know, dismissal of what I was saying. Well, I didn't know about the Trump Tower meeting. You know? I didn't know about the you know, many uh, meetings and connections between uh, people close to Trump and his campaign and Russians, Russian agents, Russian proxies. Mm-hmm. There's a new book out, which seems to be the best analysis of this by Kathleen Hall Jameson, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who's an expert in elections, and she has studied everything. And and here's her conclusion. This is not mine. Here's her conclusion. The manipulation of social media certainly changed people's minds. I mean, you would not invest money and effort, a huge intelligence operation coming from uh, Russia, the role that Cambridge Analytica played, all the rest of that, unless you were hoping to change some minds. On the margins, a couple thousand here, a couple thousand there. And then the hacking, and then the use of the uh, WikiLeaks, obviously, um, was another big factor, which she actually thinks was even more consequential. And then, of course, October 28th, you know, we got this uh, you know, surprise uh, from Jim Comey, uh, which devastated me. And then a few days later, he, on a Sunday afternoon, does a little you know, two-line email, just kidding, basically, nothing there, right. which didn't do me much good. Um, so. This all happened. So when I talk about what happened, I'm not just looking backwards. I'm trying to say the Russians are still in our electoral system. We know that media and other uh, sources of information are being manipulated. We understand that. Let's do something about it because we can't afford this. Before we do it, so one of the things you talk about is social media. You're not on Facebook that much, I guess. No, not too much. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Talk to me about that, the idea of what they've done. They, you know, Sheryl yeah. Samber was a big supporter of you. Yeah. The, a lot of Silicon Valley was. Not as much as Barack Obama, it was interesting. Um, how do you look at those? What, what is their culpability in this from your point of view? Well, I mean, you're really the expert on this, Karen, and the stuff that you write and the, the lines you connect is, is uh, really uh, in, informative to me. I think that what happened is a very clever adversary, political adversary in the case of Cambridge Analytical and others, 
but literally a national adversary, national security adversary in the case of Russia, just exploited the heck out of Facebook. Right. And used it for the way it was built. You used it both as it was built, but also manipulated it. And the, you know, the, the purchase of uh, information, the purchase of, of posts, the purchase of ads, the purchase of whatever that was going on, paid Bots. for with rubles right. um, in, uh, yeah, exactly, in the first uh, instance, there was a very well-organized effort on Facebook uh, to go far beyond the usual methodology right. that we'd seen, you know, first off in the Obama campaign. And, you know, I had the same people working for me, basically. Mm -hmm. And they were going kind of Obama 2.0. And we were working really hard in this arena about how you identify voters and give them information, answer their questions, persuade them. What was happening in the campaign, though, and, you know, this was a combination of all the efforts going on, is that you know, Trump and, and his team were playing a whole different game. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, after the election and questions started being asked uh, that Facebook or Twitter or anybody else began to try to delve a little more deeply into what their platform had been used for. And so what do you, what do you yeah. think of those companies then? I think we are in a, uh, a very, uh, we're, we're certainly in a new uncharted territory. I think that the companies themselves are going to have to be held accountable. I am so. a, I'm a supporter of the efforts, you know, uh, Congressman Roe Kahana, Professor Berners-Lee, others who are trying to come up with some kind of uh, regulatory platform uh, that would give uh, support to uh, the continuing open platform that we want there to be so people can communicate, but with more accountability imposed upon the companies so that they would have to recognize that what's happening now is far beyond anything Mark Zuckerberg thought about in his dorm in Harvard. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have the military in Myanmar using Facebook to stoke genocide against the Rohingya, that is not something that is going to bring people together and create community. Just the opposite. Mm -hmm. It is being used for the worst kinds of political purposes. And now, you know, Facebook just admitted Iran has, you know, taken a page from the Russian book and they're in there trying to figure out, okay, how do we sow discord? How do we create divisiveness within uh, America? I mean, what I want people to understand is, yeah, it might have been most... Uh, apparent to us for the first time uh, in the 2016 election, but our adversaries play a long game. Mm -hmm. And part of their long game, and this is part of Putin's whole worldview, is to cause as much divisiveness within the United States, pitting groups against each other, uh, creating, uh, as they did during the campaign, phony demonstrations and really aggressively uh, negative um, advertising. advertising in order for people to kind of get off balance and you to, to walk away from you, our democracy. Have you seen Mark or Cheryl since the election? I have. Uh, Say thanks a lot. I appreciate it. No, I mean, <laughs> look, I, I think they, they knew more during the election than they admitted, but I think they didn't understand the full implication of it. And what about the Obama administration? Uh, well, I think that, you know, they were in a terrible bind. You know, when 
when it became clear that the Russians not only had hacked materials, emails from the DNC, but now we know from the second indictment by Mueller, stolen a lot of our, uh, our voter data, you know, which is sort of the lifeblood. And so you always wonder, well, how did the Trump campaign or one of their outside groups know to target, you know, Joe Smith and Eau Claire, Wisconsin uh, with this message? Well, they stole the data we had acquired, both our campaign and the Democratic National Committee, that gave us our persuadable targets, you know, people who could go either way. Um, so when all of this was being discovered, I think uh, starting in August of 2016, the intelligence uh, uh, officials within the Obama administration went to see what's called the Gang of Eight. The Gang of Eight are the four, you know, leaders in the House, four leaders in the Senate, the, you know, the majority minority leader and the, and the chair and ranking member of the intelligence committees. That's what's called the Gang of Eight. And they went to brief them. And as I understand what happened, uh, they basically said, we're very concerned about this and the president's going to confront Putin and Brennan's going to you know, deliver this message to the you know, Russian national security uh, director, et cetera. And we want to warn the American public because this is like a threat to our election. And Mitch McConnell said, if you do, I'll say it's partisan and I will go after you for it. That's basically what happened. So that yeah, put the, the Obama White House in a really difficult position. Now, they also thought I was gonna win. I mean, all of their polling, all of their analytics, plus ours, everybody said I was gonna so win. So I think so that their, their thinking on this, which I really, you know, I'm, I, I, I can't help but understand how difficult the problem was, uh, was what do we do? I mean, you know, McConnell does this, which he's fully capable of doing, as we have seen, uh, since you know, no, you know, no line can not be crossed in order to undercut our our democratic norms and uh, the regular order of the Senate. So I think they just decided that they couldn't do it. Now there was some effort to try to get out to the rest of the world. Harry Reid wrote a letter to Jim Comey saying, if you know things about what's happening in the election, you owe it to the American people uh, to tell them. But, it, it, you know, the trade-off they, they faced was uh, a difficult one. I wish they could have figured out some way to try so, to, you know, so because we were, we were trying to get as much information as possible, and we didn't know what they knew. That was right. not within our so, purview. So are you worried? I want to get to the 2020 yeah. election and some other issues. Uh, are you yourself worried about these elections now with the continue? Well, I'm worried because even the intelligence officials in the Trump administration are worried. I mean, they, they went, you know, you had the director of national intelligence and homeland security and, you know, the, the CIA, everybody came to the White House briefing room a couple of months ago and basically said the Russians are still in our systems. Now, they were trying to talk to the guy who lives at the White House. Um, and, and they did it by hoping that, you know, what they said would be on Fox and Friends so that he would actually, you know, see it and maybe, you know, think about the country. Um, so if they're worried about it and Dan Coats, who's a, a, a very, uh, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, yeah, he's a Democrat. He's a director of national intelligence. He's a very thoughtful, oh. smart guy. He basically said, yeah, the light is blinking red. Now, I don't know how much more specific you could be. So the Russians are in. How far are they in? What are they prepared to do? For whom, since Trump is not on the ballot? 
Well, we know they got into voter registration databases. There are, you know, there are so many concerns about already existing voter suppression and uh, purging that's going on in, in many states, uh, but Georgia seems to be the so, prime example. So say it doesn't work and, they, and that we have an election and the Democrats win the House. Mm -hmm. Are you in favor of an impe impeachment proceeding? <clears throat> you know, I, I think that if there is evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, well, then that's the responsibility of the House. But I don't think that they can uh, assume that until the Mueller investigation is done. That seems to me to be the appropriate uh, process. But there's a lot that has to be done anyway. Every single committee has to do investigations and hold hearings about what is being done in the uh, agencies as they attempt to turn the clock back. And it's not just turn the clock back on the Obama eight years, it's literally turned the clock back a half a century. You know, really trying to just rip the guts out of uh, the civil rights enforcement and all kinds of other important matters like the environment, climate change, whatever we know is important, they have it under their so, thumb right now. So a house under a democratic leadership, I think will have to come with a positive agenda. We need to reinstate the Voting Rights Act. We need to do a whole lot of other things, deal with campaign finance reform and the like, and begin to do a lot of investigations. And they've got, they've got to get off the dime quickly so that they can start reporting to the American people about it. And the fi final thing on this whole area is, you know, when Mitch McConnell said the other day that they were likely gonna look to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid because the deficit and the debt have exploded because of their very, uh, I believe, irresponsible tax cut. You know, you've got to you've got to do both offense and defense. And people need to know before they vote on November six that the Republicans will come right after your Social Security and your Medicare and your Medicaid. I saw that after Bush won his second term. As soon as he won, they began going after Social right, Security, so Medicare, and Medicaid, and we had to, you know, really stop them from being successful. So you seem rather passionate. I am really, I really. <laughs> well, yes, I am. So, <laughs> do you? We're gonna talk about 2020 in a minute. Do you wanna run again? No. Wait. <laughs> no. That was a pause. Well, I, well, I'd like to be president. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, be, look, I, I, I think, hopefully, when we have a Democrat in the Oval Office in January of 2021, there's gonna be so much work to be done. I mean, we have confused everybody in the world, including ourselves, and <laughs> we have confused our friends and our enemies. Right. They have no idea what the United States stands for, what we're likely to do, what we think is important. Uh, so the work would be work that I feel very well prepared for, having been in the Senate for eight years, having been a diplomat uh, in the State Department, and it's just going to be a lot of heavy lifting. So um, are you going to yeah. be doing any of that lifting? Do you feel like... Oh, I have no idea, Kara, but I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to even think about it until we get through this uh, November 6th election about what's going to happen after that, but I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure we have a Democrat in the White House come January of 2020. And who among, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about your role in that in a second, but who among them are you interested in? Well, you know, I, 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 
know everyone who's running and or thinking of running or possibly running. Um, but, you know, there's, a, there's always that period between, hey, that sounds like a really good idea, and then trying to actually think it through, see if it is the right thing for you to do, see if you can raise the money, all of the questions that go into it. So I'm not going to handicap uh, the race before anybody actually gets into it. I think we'd have a number of excellent candidates who would be really formidable on the campaign trail, but let's wait and see who it is. I mean, we may have as many as 15, 20 candidates, and right. you know that, that's a big group to try to sort itself out, um, and I'm just gonna wait and, and uh, you know, watch do, it happen. Do you have anyone you're particularly <laughs> interested in? Um, no, I'm, I'm, you know, there are, no, there, there, are a number of, there are a number of excellent potential candidates. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, this, first of all, if we don't win on November 6th. I'm going to start 6th, naming names and see what you're feeling. No, I've died. Oh, okay, if you want to. But all if, right, I will. But if we okay, don't no, win, I'm going to. can I, okay. but, if, but if we don't okay. win on November 6th, honestly, I mean, I know this sounds far-fetched, but this administration, if they continue to control all branches of government and they have been stocking the courts with ideologues, um, you, will, you will find that it will be much more difficult to run. And people who have never had to face the fire, once they get out there and they start being the target of the vitriol and hatred that comes against anybody who criticizes Trump, you know, that, that's gonna cause a number of people to do a bit of soul searching. Um, so I, I think we've got to give everybody who is thinking about it, or even people who wake up on November 7th and start thinking about it, uh, right. we've got to give them you know, the space to make what is a really serious calculation depending upon right, what the we, political situation is. Can we talk about individually? And then I want to get to Saudis. And some, um, Warren. What? Warren, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, Elizabeth's a great, you know, she, look, she's running for re-election. She's obviously going to be re-elected uh, overwhelmingly, and she's got a great message. She's got a great passion for uh, the fight to restore the middle class. I mean, if she decides to run, she'll have a lot to say. Bloomberg. Well, you know, I think Mike Bloomberg becoming a Democrat should at least suggest he's thinking about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I had the same thought. Yeah, I, I, I mean, great minds and all of that. I yeah. think he is, um, you know, he, he, he has overwhelming resources, but he also, you know, has a real uh, interest in running things and making them work better. And, you know, he'd have to get out there and persuade Democrats that he was actually in the primary to be the Democratic nominee. But if he, get, if he gets out there, I think he'll have, uh, you know, a lot to contribute. Uh, let's see, Kamala Harris. Kamala is a fantastic human being as well as uh, a terrific senator. And she... Uh, you know, she just brings a whole uh, very fresh and open uh, approach to a lot of these issues that she cares deeply about, that she's worked on as attorney general, as a prosecutor before that. And being from California is a big deal because the California primary will have by far the largest number of delegates. So, you know, the politics and, and her uh, obvious interests in these important issues would stand her in good stead. Okay. Oprah. <laughs> you know, um, look, she's an icon, and she, she, has, uh, she has said she's not interested. And 
Really? Yeah, I don't believe her. You don't believe her? Well, then... I'm teasing. I believe her. You believe her. You do believe her. Well, I, I believe her because, I mean, I mean, she's got almost the perfect life right now. You know? Right. Uh, and she has... I'll tell you a story that is kind of related, although a little off topic. So when, um, when Aung San Suu Kyi, who I got to know quite well when I was leading the opening of the United States to actually go back into what was then called Burma, Myanmar. You know, she was the human rights icon, the, you know, the, the lady, the lady who had lived in house arrest, who had stood up for democracy in her country. And she and I had a really uh, long couple of conversations about her decision that she was going to go into politics. And I said to her then, I said, you know, I can understand why you want to do that. You want to be part of helping to forge this democracy that you have fought for, suffered for uh, over so many years. But once you go from icon to politician, it will be a very different world that you will face. And the calculations, the thinking that you have to make as a politician oftentimes, you know, pushes you to compromise, forces you to have to, you know, ally yourself with people that you agree with one time out of a hundred. There's just a lot that goes into it. You know, it is the making of sausage. So, uh, so, so I think that Oprah is, is so smart. I think she would say, look, I can help influence the debate. I can be talking about important things that we need to, you know, be a, a country that starts talking and listening to each other again, rather than getting into the political arena. So she wouldn't want to, like, hang out with Sean Hannity, for example. <laughs> well, no Democrat likes to hang out with Sean Hannity. You know, I mean, that's one of the problems. Yes. You know, the, the propaganda value that Fox provides to the Republican Party is incalculable. It is so incredibly important to their brand, to their messaging. They, they just put, turn themselves over to be, you know, in uh, an al alliance with Fox. So I think that it's difficult to go on their shows. Very few Democrats any longer do because, you know, there's no such thing as, as having a reasonable conversation. You're just going to be, you know, you know, beaten up and chopped up and, and delivered to the audience. Would, you, would so. you go on Fox News? I've gone on Fox News. I've been on Fox News. And, you know, look, there are a few people that you feel like you could have a, a reasonable uh, conversation with. Uh, Sean Hannity is not one of them. Okay. But not, that would not be my recommendation to Oprah or anybody I, else. Right? I would agree. <laughs> I'm going to get off these things. I want to talk about you. I'm going to talk about personal things with you and also, but, but running. One of the things that has happened, let's start with the political part. There's been a lot of articles, Hillary should shut up. Mm. Hillary should not talk. Hillary's got to go away. Right. What? Okay. <laughs> but, but those articles are there. You know them. Of course, yeah. What do you think of those? I think they're ridiculous. I got that. <laughs> so, what, no. Why, where do they come, where from your perspective they come from? Well, I don't know. Um, I noticed that there were no articles telling Al Gore to go away or John Kerry to go away or John McCain or Mitt Romney to go away. Mitt Romney is going to the Senate. That's where he's going. Um, and so I, I don't really know. I think we could speculate, but I, I don't have any, uh, you know, any evidence or no, information. Please speculate. Let's speculate. Okay. Um, look, I, I, think, I, I think some of it, and I write about this in my book, some of it is just of the same category of the 
sexist behavior and sexist kind of talk around me and my campaign, but not only me. You mentioned a couple of my former, you know, colleagues from, you know, having been in the Senate. Elizabeth Warren's on the floor of the Senate delivering a speech against Jeff Sessions to be attorney general, and she's reading from a letter by Coretta Scott King, who had doubts about Jeff Sessions years before when they wanted to make him a judge. And Mitch McConnell goes to the floor, and as the majority leader, he has certain prerogatives, and he basically orders her to stop talking because she is, uh, you know, attacking the character of a fellow senator. And, and she, as that's where the phrase comes, you know, nevertheless, she persisted, she kept talking, and then he ordered her off the floor. I never saw that in eight years. Um, and what was especially interesting to me, because I was watching it in real time, is that she left the floor, and a Democratic senator, a good guy, comes and reads the rest of the letter, and McConnell never says anything. Or Kamala Harris questioning uh, in one of her hearings, and as a former prosecutor, she's really you know, going after the witness. It uh, might have been Jeff Sessions again. And the chairman basically told her to you know, cease and desist, that she was being disrespectful. Now, excuse me, I have seen a lot of the back and forth in the Senate. People can get a little heated. And then look at what happened in the Kavanaugh hearings, right? I mean, the way that Kavanaugh spoke to and treated Amy Klobuchar was just outrageous. And also similarly to Dianne Feinstein. Um, now, so, so yes, I mean, I have my own experiences. I wrote about those, but I also said in my book, the press and the political press is still kind of dominated by an attitude about politics that is very male-centric, very male-oriented. You know, I've given hundreds of speeches, and maybe thousands by this time, and the, uh, I've, I've been on lots of platforms with a lot of male speakers, and male speakers get worked up, and they start to shout, and they may even pound the podium. Well, all of a sudden, I'm the one speaking too loudly. I'm the one who is being criticized by uh, the political press. So I think some of it is that really pervasive, persistent uh, double standard that exists. And uh, I regret that because it stands in the way of a lot of women uh, being taken seriously and going as far as they can. And you have to persevere through it. You can't give in to it. Uh, so when they say that, you know, I basically ignore it for obvious reasons. If you don't want to hear what I have to say, don't report on it. Don't talk to me. Don't come to this event. I mean, yeah. you know, there are a lot of ways to avoid it. We're listening to my October 2018 interview with Hillary Clinton recorded live at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. We're going to take another break now, but we'll be back soon. Here's today's STEM tip. Don't throw out that old plastic bottle. Repurpose it by turning it into an awesome terrarium. Just fill it with sand, pebbles, soil, and your favorite plant. It'll grow sealed right in its own ecosystem. Learn more at She Can STEM. A message from the Ad Council. All right, we're going to get some questions from the audience. Okay. Should, we talked about this yesterday. Should the U.S. end our relationship with Saudi Arabia? Well, we should certainly be uh, imposing some accountability on Saudi Arabia. Um, there's two elements. To, well, there's two Mohammed elements to this. Salam, right? Yeah, look, I mean, the, you know, we've had a, a long, since literally FDR, long relationship uh, with Saudi Arabia. A lot of it focused on our need for their oil, which we don't 
need so much anymore. And then later sort of focused on, you know, their role in the region and especially post-1979, their counterbalance to Iran. So there are reasons to have a, uh, a relationship uh, that is focused on our interests and our security. But it's very clear uh, that if we don't send a, a signal to the new, uh, the new ruler, the crown prince, uh, that he could very well continue down a path that would destabilize his own country and destabilize uh, the region uh, to their detriment and ours. And the premeditated murder of Khashoggi uh, was so cold-blooded so barbaric, medieval, that it's hard to imagine they, did, they never stopped to think maybe somebody would know we were doing this. Right. <laughs> but if they did, they must have concluded we don't care because the only country we really care about in terms of their reaction are not the Turks, who we already have some rivalries with, but the United States. And, you know, we're not, we don't have to worry about Do think President Trump and, and Jared Kushner. Right. Do you think Jared Kushner signaled that to them, as some people? Well, we don't know all of the signaling that was done during the campaign, nor in the immediate aftermath of the election. We're learning more about secret meetings in the Seychelles and efforts to try to have secret back channels to Russia and visits from representatives of Arab nations. So we know there was a lot of activity uh, that I have to believe was meant to further the interests of the Trump family um, and including real estate interests in this city uh, that were then uh, taken to the next level with Trump making his first visit there and on from that. There are reports that Kushner may have shared American intelligence or at least intelligence gathered by Americans, maybe from other sources with Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, crown prince. I don't know that to be a fact, but the very idea that it's being talked about is deeply troubling. Is he incompetent or competent? Oh, I think they, I think <laughs> they always have a goal in mind. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, they, you know, they have a, a really weird idea about democracy. You know, Trump's open admiration of dictators, his desire to be able to order people around to go after his, quote, enemies, go after a free press, everything that he does on a daily basis, I think those views are shared by uh, his closest uh, advisors, and they're always looking for some advantage, and it could be an advantage for their own personal financial interests, it could be an advantage for uh, how they uh, see dominance and power, but it doesn't, as often as it should, which is all the time, correspond with our national security interests. Do you wish you had turned around at that debate and said, back off, jackass? <laughs> well. That was a physical evidence of it. Yes, you know, uh, I did think about it. I, um, <laughs> what stopped I, you? You know, I, I, I will tell you, it, it's something I've talked a lot about with my uh, women friends who are in politics or used to be in politics. <laughs> and boy, we've had some great conversations about it because I mean, the dilemma, and hopefully the more women we elect, the more women we have up on the stage, the more it won't be just one woman carrying all the water. You'll have a lot of different women, like men in politics, who are coming all sizes and shapes and, you know, ideological uh, perspectives. So we talk a lot about it, and their, their common 
conclusion is, wow, that would have been really hard to do without looking either weak or angry. And I certainly didn't want to look weak since he was playing, you know, the alpha male. uh, And that was something that I know goes through the minds uh, of voters, particularly Republican voters, uh, particularly male voters. Like, is this person strong enough to be, you know, commander in chief of the military and all of that? But also being angry. uh, That's why I'm so glad there's these books being written by, you know, Rebecca Traster and others who are talking about legitimizing women's anger, because right now it is still seen as an aberration or as threatening. So so I'm just curious, what would you have said? I could stand behind you if you want. No, you know, (laughs) I would have said something like, you know, back off. You're not going to intimidate me. And we're supposed to be here talking about the issues that matter to the American people. So quit your game playing and answer the questions, something like that. Okay. Okay. That's a good one. So that sort of answers this question, what would you say to men? What what do you wish we knew? Back off. (laughs) Stop your game playing. You know, I do. I think there is a lot. I mean, I'm actually really glad that you asked the question and that Kara chose it because there's a lot of confusion. You know, I have two brothers. I had a dad who was a chief petty officer in the Navy during World War II. You know, I have lots of male friends. Obviously, I'm married to a man. I mean, yeah. You know, so I, I... I hear the generals really like you. Yeah, the, I got a lot of generals I like. So okay. um, I think we've got to get back to basics. What do women want? The age-old question Freud asked. We want to be respected. We want to be treated with equality. We want our chances in life not to be decided by the fact that we are women. I remember I was doing a, uh, I was doing a, uh, a Voice of America <clears throat> call-in question when I was first lady. And the question came from a man who said he was in Iran, which I thought was interesting. And it was after my Beijing speech about women's rights or human rights. And he said to me on, the, on this broadcast, he said, I just don't understand what that means. What, what is it? What does it mean to have a woman's rights? What does that mean? I said, so I want you to shut your eyes and imagine everything you can do. You can walk down the street without being afraid. You can go to a soccer game and cheer your lungs out if you want to. You can go to work. You can have a family that you are proud of and, and a part of. Whatever you could do, I want you to think that a woman should be able to do exactly the same thing that you can do. That's what we're asking for. We're not asking, you know, to be better than or given extra special uh, privileges, but we want to be treated as your equal. And and everything that we can bring to the table be respected. So I think... I I want extra special privileges, but go ahead. Yeah, but well... (laughs) There are outliers that we have to deal with. Um, you know, if you know Kara, you know she's not kidding. Um, I'm not. So, but, but, but no, this is a conversation that needs to take place in, in homes and businesses. Because I do think, for most of us, and I, I guess for nearly all men, you know, that's just not what you were raised to believe. You were yeah. raised to be the protector, the supporter, the, you know, the patriarch, whatever it might have been, whatever the particular category was. And so, yes, this is a huge cultural shift. And so 
I, I take it seriously, and it's going to take a while to work through um, our families and our workplaces, our societies. Yeah, it's hard. I have two sons, and they tried to drive me off the sidewalk the other day because <laughs> they own the sidewalk, you know. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and you found yourself on the edge, right? Right, yeah. and then I shoved the crap out of them. <laughs> As you know, my theory that all men should be raised by lesbians and then moved back to the general population. Um, such good men. <laughs> and they're really good at sports then. Okay, um, so are the Democrats becoming the victim of too much political correctness? Just a few more. I know you have to okay, no, look, I think this is a much tougher question than it sounds because okay. the easy answer is, well, you know, we don't want political correctness. We just want people to, you know, express themselves and, and be honest and authentic uh, in what they say and believe. But I think it's also the case that what's often called political correctness is politeness. It's not being rude and, and insulting to people. Um, it's respecting the diversity that we have in our society. Uh, so I, I don't know exactly how to answer that because you know, the Democratic Party is a much uh, more diverse political party, attracting people who are um, African-American, Latino, uh, LGBT, whatever the, uh, you know, the, the, the reason why people feel more comfortable where they are uh, taken in, where they are included as part of a political uh, movement or party. And I don't think it's politically correct to say we value that. Mm. And, and I don't want to go around insulting people. I don't want to paint with a broad brush, every immigrant is this, every African-American is that, every you know, other person with you know, different religious beliefs or whatever, you know, that is, that's childish. What do you think of Cory Booker's, and you didn't comment on him and you're, feel free oh, to- Oh, I, I adore no, him. What do you think about him saying, kick them in the shins, essentially, start to get to that kind of political- Well, that was Eric Holder. Yeah, Eric Holder, oh, Eric Holder, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know they all look alike. No, they I don't. don't. <laughs> oh, well done. You know, Hillary. Yeah, I, I, I was, I, I was paid by Mark Zuckerberg to do that. <laughs> okay. Um, can I just say? No. What I, what can I. Can I just say you've been reading Trump's tweets beautifully? Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. No, but look, I, I, I think this is out of frustration because Trump dominates the media 24/7, mm -hmm. and he's brilliant at distract and divert. If, if he's in a little bit of trouble over here, well, hey, look at that shiny object over there. Um, if something bad is actually happening in the world, go to a rally and get everybody all you know, whipped up, out, lock her up and all of that. He's really very adept. And it's the classic demagogue uh, toolkit. Um, so there is a frustration. They don't want civility, they want consent. Mm -hmm. They want you to agree with them on Kavanaugh. They want you to agree with them on immigration. They want you to agree with them. They don't want to debate, and goodness gracious, they don't want facts, evidence, truth, or reason to be part of that debate. So I, I think it is frustrating for a lot of us, I include myself, um, when you are just pummeled by these people because they have their propaganda, Fox News, they have all this other stuff out in the you know, ecosystem of the media, they've got the president, they've got all of this, you know, just hammering on people like me all the time. And then when somebody says, well, shouldn't you be civil? Well, I believe in it. I mean, I, I'm maybe, you know, too much. I didn't turn around and say what I said I would have said. Um, so I don't think that uh, that 
is any way equivalent, because we live in, unfortunately, the world of false equivalency, that is not equivalent to the relentless, uh, very dangerous attacks that are waged against Democrats and others all the time. Do you have an answer to lock her up? Well, I'm just waiting to be able to say lock them up. (laughs) All right, good one. Well, well played, Hillary. All right. How would you, um, Secretary Clinton. Oh, Hillary's better. Okay, okay, all right. How would you, which one do you like? I'm just curious, which one do they have to use? I've had Hillary a lot longer. Okay, good. (laughs) Has two L's, everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, How would you encourage the government to handle AI? Just a few more, and then I know you have to go because it's your birthday. Wow, we could talk about this for a long time. Um, Go ahead, Hillary. Yeah, no. It's got the crowd. I think they don't mind hearing from you. Yes, I think, I mean, one of the things I wanted to do if I had been president was to, delve deeply into what we have to do about AI. I mean, if you follow the debate between people who are, you know, quite knowledgeable about technology, it's like split right down the middle. There are those who think it's going to be the demise of the human race and those who think it's going to be, you know, the greatest breakthrough for the human race. Well, we need to figure out, you know, which is which and are there, uh, are there plans we should make that would try to rein in uh, some of the AI before it is unloosed on the world. Now, other countries are moving very fast ahead, China being the, the best example. I mean, China is currently creating uh, the most intense surveillance system that's ever been created in the history of the world using facial recognition. Uh, and AI. And AI is behind it. They, they are literally leading the way about how you control people, how you control their behavior, certainly, but they're also moving toward track. How do you change their behavior and their thinking? So they're starting a program to give points to people where people will be rewarded by certain behaviors. Some of that will be taken from the surveillance uh, that is being done. Oh, you know, Mr. Yang over there, he did a nice thing. We're going to tell him we're giving him some credit. Well, how do they know that? Because they've got cameras everywhere and they've got Mr. Yang's face uh, recorded. So. The AI that I am fearful of is not just, you know, the robots that might decide to turn around and kill you one day. Um, that does give me some pause. They but, don't care about you know, but you They know, don't care about They you. don't care about that, yeah. Right. So I, I care about the coercive control. That people have control of AI. That, that, that yeah. governments will have over our lives. And everybody should care about that. And, yeah. you know, we have willingly now for more than a decade given up our most personal data that is the real guts, the bloodstream for AI. You know, our personal data is the most valuable commodity in the world right now. I mean, it's far more valuable than any energy source or any other uh, commodity you can think about. And we have given it over. We've given it over to companies by and large, but that is just one little step away from governments. Yep. And some governments are already coercing or, or very nicely asking with a big fist behind the head of companies to provide that information. Uh, but then companies are, are negligent and, and irresponsible and that information is gushing out anyway. So I worry a lot about the control. You know, it really is like Brave New World, 1984, all of those allegedly science fiction Um, social commentaries that uh, we read decades ago. Now the tools are becoming available. And 
we'll watch what happens in China, uh, and I think it will scare the heck out of a lot of people in this country and Europe and elsewhere. And we're doing nothing about it. The, nothing one of the current, we have no CTO, we have no chief science officer. No, because they don't. I mean, they, you know, science is a bother. I think the guy who was doing the yeah, I think the guy who was doing technology did a real estate for a long time. Yeah, well, that would be the pool to pool yeah. pull, pull okay. from, right? All right, two last things. From one nasty woman to another, I don't know what nasty woman's in the audience, but I think there's a lot. <laughs> well, where, do we, where do we go from here? To the ballot box. I mean, you know, please, please. Um, there, there are so many important issues to talk about, and obviously we couldn't talk about them all in just uh, one of our uh, fun conversations, our third, as mm -hmm. Kara said. But, Everything depends upon this election, and I can't stress it too much. I mean, I know if, if young people voted at even half the percentage that people over 65 vote, this country would look very different. And I think part of the challenge is to convince every young person that elections are always about the future, and it's far more about your future than it is about mine. And I think anything you can do between now and the time the polls close on November 6th, there are some really consequential congressional races here in New York, in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, uh, places that are within easy distance that you could go and knock on doors and make phone calls or even stay at home and do the same by contacting a campaign. If we turn our vote out and we overcome the suppression efforts in uh, places like Georgia. I was just in Florida with Andrew Gillum, who is a fabulous uh, candidate, absolutely great. Um, and, and, you know, he's doing everything he can to get as big a vote as possible so there can't be any question uh, that somebody could undercut him. Uh, so that's what we've got to do. And there's nothing more important than, as, than once we hopefully take back the House, maybe hold our own in the Senate, pick up some governorships, then we've got to say, okay, an agenda, and let's drive that agenda. And it needs to be you know, as, as big a list as we can because we have to get as much done in a year as possible before the presidential campaign takes off in earnest. And you know, to lay down the groundwork about this is what, this is what citizens, this is what voters should expect. So uh, there'll be a lot to talk about after we are uh, hopefully successful in this election. All right, last question. Is it your birthday? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is my birthday. That's my toughest one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> Jennifer, that is so cute. Oh, my gosh. I think there's candy in there for your grandchildren. I think that's fabulous looking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can go back and tell my grandchildren I got something out of coming. Yeah. You can bring it to them. That is so cool. Thank you. All right, Hillary Clinton, what's your current mood? My current mood? Yeah, what is it? Optimistic, positive, determined. You know, I mean, don't let them get you down. That's all I can tell you. Don't let all them right. get you down. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks again to Hillary Clinton for coming on Recode Decode, and thank you for listening. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Don't forget to subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for fresh conversations about tech, business, and more every week. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. 
We'll be back here with another Best of Recode Decode episode on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com.